Chapter 5 of The Blind Brother, A Story of the Pennsylvania Coal Mines by Homer Green. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5 The Verdict Pale and trembling, Tom passed out into the aisle and down around the jury box and stepped upon the little railed platform. In impressive tones, the clerk administered to him the oath, and he kissed the Holy Bible and swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The whole truth. The words echoed and re-echoed through his mind as he looked down upon the lawyers and jurors and across the bar into the hundreds of expectant faces turned toward him. For a moment he felt frightened and dizzy. But only for a moment. Fear gave place to astonishment, for Jack Rennie had started to his feet, with wild eyes and face blanched with sudden dread, and, bending over till his great beard swept Pleadwell's shoulder, he whispered hoarsely into the lawyer's ear, in a tone audible throughout the room, "'You didn't tell me who the lad was. He mustn't be sworn. It's not lawful. I'll now have it. I say, I'll now have it.' In another moment, Pleadwell had his hand on the man's shoulder and forced him into a seat. There was a whispered consultation of a few minutes between attorney and client, and then, while Rennie sat with his eyes turned steadfastly away from the witness, his huge hand clutching the edge of the table, and the expression of nervous dread still on his face, Pleadwell, calmly, as if there had been no interruption, proceeded with the examination. He asked Tom about his residence and his occupation— and about how blind Benny lost himself in the mines. With much skill, he carried the story forward to the time when Tom said goodnight to Sandy and started down the hill toward home. As you approached the breaker, did you see a man pass by you in the shadow? I did, replied Tom. About how far from you? I don't know. Ten feet, maybe. Where did he go? Around the corner by the engine room. From what point did he come? From the loading place. How long after he left the loading place was it that you saw the first blaze there? Two or three minutes, maybe. Did you see his face? I did. How did he look? Describe him. He was short and thin and had no whiskers. Pleadwell pointed to Rennie and asked, Was this the man? No, sir answered Tom. Pleadwell leaned back in his chair and turned to the jury with a smile of triumph on his face. The people in the courtroom nodded to each other and whispered, That clears Jack. Everyone but Jack Rennie himself seemed to feel the force of Tom's testimony. The prisoner still sat clutching the table, looking blankly at the wall, pale, almost trembling, with some suppressed emotion but through Tom's mind kept echoing the solemn words of his oath, the whole truth, the whole truth. And he had not told it. His testimony was no better than a lie. An awful sense of guilt came pressing in upon him from above, from below, from every side. Hateful voices seemed sounding in his brain. Perjurer in spirit, receiver of bribes. The torture of his self-abhorrence, in that one moment of silence, was terrible beyond belief. Then a sudden impulse seized him, a bright, 
brave, desperate impulse. He stepped down from the witness stand, passed swiftly between chairs and tables, tearing the money from his breast pocket by the way, and flinging the hated hundred dollars down before the astonished Pleadwell. He returned as quickly as he came, stepped into his place with swelling breast and flaming cheeks and flashing eyes, and exclaimed, falling, in his excitement, into the broad accent of his mother tongue. No, I'm free. Do what you will with me. Prison me, kill me, but I'll no hold back the truth longer for any money, nor the money that anyone can give me. Men started to their feet in astonishment. Someone back among the people began to applaud. Jack Rennie turned his face toward the boy with a look of admiration, and his eyes were blurred with sudden tears. He's the son of his father, he exclaimed. The son of his father. He's a poor lad, and good luck to him. But it was flying in the face of fortune to swear him. I told you. I told you. Who gave you that money? asked the district attorney of Tom, when quiet had been partially restored. Pleadwell was on his feet in an instant. Stop! he shouted. Don't answer that question! Did I give you that money? No, sir, replied Tom, awed by the man's vehemence. Did Jack Rennie give you that money? No, sir. Pleadwell turned to the court. Then, if your honors please... We object to the witness answering this question. This is a desperate theatrical trick, concocted by the prosecution to prejudice this defendant. We ask that they be not allowed to support it with illegal evidence. The judge turned to Tom. Do you know? He asked. That this money was given to you by the defendant's authority, or by his knowledge or consent? I can't swear that it was, replied Tom. The objection is sustained, said his honor abruptly. Pleadwell had gained a point. He might yet win the day, but the district attorney would not loose his grip. Why did you just give that money to the attorney for the defense? He asked. Pleadwell interposed another objection but the court ruled that the question was properly in the line of cross-examination of the defendant's witness, and Tom answered. "'Cause I had no right to it, and he knows who it belongs to.' "'Whom does it belong to?' "'I don't know, sir. I only know who gave it to me.' "'When was it given to you?' "'A week ago last Thursday, sir.' "'Where was it given to you?' "'In Mr. Pleadwell's office.' Was Mr. Pleadwell present? No, sir. How much money was given to you? One hundred dollars, sir. For what purpose was it given to you? To send my blind brother away to get his sight. I mean, what were you to do in consideration of receiving the money? Before Tom could answer, Pleadwell was addressing the court. I submit, Your Honor, he said that this inquisition has gone far enough. I protest against my client being prejudiced by the unauthorized and irrelevant conduct of anyone. The judge turned to the district attorney. Until you can more closely connect the defendant or his authorized agent, he said, with the giving of this money, we shall be obliged to restrict you in this course of inquiry. Pleadwell had made another point. He still felt that the case was not hopeless. 
then summons the private counsel for the prosecution, took the witness. Tom? He said. Did you tell the truth in your direct examination? I did, sir, replied Tom. But not the whole truth. Well, then, suppose you tell the rest of it. I object, interposed Pleadwell, to allowing this witness to ramble over the field of legal and illegal evidence at will. If counsel has questions to ask, let him ask them. We will see that the witness keeps within proper limits, said the judge, then turning to Tom. Go on, sir. Well, you see, said Tom, it was all just as I told it. Only when I got to the bottom of the hill and see that man go by me in the dark, I was surprised like, and I stopped and listened. And then I heard a noise in under the loading place. And then that man, pointing his trembling forefinger to Rennie, came out, a kind of talking to himself. And he said that was the last job of that kind he'd ever do. That they put it on him because he hadn't anybody to feel bad over him if he should get catched at it. And then I see a blaze start up right where he come from. And it got bigger and bigger. And then he turned and see me. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, Don't you speak nor whisper or I'll take the life of ye or something like that. I can't quite remember. I was so scared. And then he pushed me down the track and he said, Run as fast as ever you can and don't you dare to look back. And I run, and I didn't look back, till the fire was a-burnin' up awful. And then I went with the rest to look at it. And he was there, and a-workin' desperate to save things, and, and, and that's all. Tom stopped, literally panting for breath. The jurors were leaning forward in their seats to catch every word, and over among the crowded benches, where the friends of the prisoner were gathered, there was a confused hum of voices, from which, now and then, rose angry and threatening words. Rennie sat gazing intently upon Tom, as though fascinated by the boy's presence, but on his face there was no sign of disappointment or anger, only the same look of admiration that had come there when Tom returned the money. He clutched Pleadwell's sleeve and said to him, That settles it, man, that settles it. The spirit of the dead father's in the lad, and it's no use of fighting it. I'll plead guilty now, and the end of it. And take my sentence and stand it. How long it'll be, think you? Twenty years in the penitentiary, answered Pleadwell, sharply and shortly. Rennie dropped back in his chair, as though the lawyer had struck him. Twenty years, he repeated. Twenty years? That's a man long time. I cannot stand that. I cannot live through it. I'll no plead guilty. Do what you can for me. But there was little that Pleadwell could do now. His worst fears had been realized. He knew it was running a desperate risk to place on the witness stand a boy with a conscience like Tom's. But he knew, also, that if he could get Tom's story out in the shape he desired to, and keep back the objectionable parts, his client would go free, and he had great faith in the power of money to solve over a bruised conscience. He had tried it and failed. There is nothing to do now but make the best of it. He resumed his calm demeanor and turned to Tom with the question, Did you ever tell to me the story you have just now told on the witness stand, or anything like it? I never did, answered Tom. Did you ever communicate to me in any way 
your alleged knowledge of Jack Rennie's connection with this fire? No, sir. Pleadwell had established his own innocence, so far as Tom's story was concerned, at least, and he dismissed the boy from the witness stand with a wave of his hand which was highly expressive of virtuous indignation. Tom resumed his seat by the side of Sandy, whose mouth and eyes were still wide open with surprise and admiration, and who exclaimed, as he gave the boy's hand a hearty grip, "'Well done, Tommy, my lad. Well done. I'm proud of you, and Benny and the mother'll be prouder yet of you.' And then, for the first time since the beginning of his trouble, Tom put his face in his hands and wept. But he felt that a great load had been lifted from his conscience, and that now he could look any man in the eye. There were two or three unimportant witnesses, sworn in rebuttal and sir-rebuttal, and the evidence was closed. Pleadwell rose to address the jury, feeling that it was a useless task so far as his client was concerned, but feeling also that he must exert himself to the utmost in order to rebut a strong presumption of questionable conduct on his own part. He denounced Tom's action in returning the money to him as a dramatic trick, gotten up by the prosecution for effect, and called particular attention to his own ignorance of the gift of any such money. He declared Tom's story of his meeting with Rennie, on the night of the fire, to be improbable and false, and argued that since neither the prosecution, nor the defense, nor anyone else, had ever heard one word of it till it came out on the witness stand, it must, therefore, exist only in the lad's heated imagination. He dwelt strongly on the probable falsity of the testimony of the so-called detective, went over carefully the evidence tending to establish an alibi for Rennie, spoke with enthusiasm of the man's efforts and bravery in the work of rescue, lashed the corporations for their indifference to the wrongs of the working men, spoke piteously of the fact that the law denied to Rennie the right of being sworn in his own behalf, and closed with a peroration that brought tears into the eyes of half the people in the room. He had made a powerful speech, and he knew it, but he thought of its effect only as tending to his own benefit. He had no hope for Rennie. Mr. Summons addressed the jury on the part of the Commonwealth. He maintained that the evidence of the detective taken in connection with all the other circumstances surrounding the case, was sufficient to have convicted the defendant without further proof. But the unexpected testimony, he declared, of one brave and high-minded boy has placed the guilt of the prisoner beyond the shadow of a doubt. A boy whose great heart has caused him to yield to temptation for the sake of a blind brother but whose tender conscience, whose heroic spirit, has led him to throw off the bonds which this defence has placed upon him, and, in the face of all the terrors of an order whose words are oaths of vengeance, and whose acts are deeds of blood, to fling their hated bribes at their feet, as they sat in this very court of justice, and to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, for the sake of his own honour and the upholding of the law. Warming up to his theme, and its possibilities in the way of oratorical effect, summons brought wit to bear upon logic and logic upon law, and eloquence upon both, until, at the close of his address, the conviction of the defendant 
was all but certain, and Tom's position as a hero was well assured. Then came the charge of the court, plain, decisive, reviewing the evidence in brief, calling the attention of the jury to their duty both to the Commonwealth and to the defendant, directing them that the defendant's guilt must be established in their minds beyond a reasonable doubt before they could convict, but that, if they should reach that point, then their verdict should be simply guilty. The jury passed out of the courtroom, headed by a constable, after which counsel for the defendant filed exceptions to the charge, and the court proceeded to other business. Very few people left the courtroom, as everyone supposed it would not be long before the bringing in of a verdict, and they were not mistaken. It was barely half an hour from the time the jury retired until they filed back again, and resumed their seats in the jury box. "'Gentlemen of the jury,' said the clerk of the court, rising, "'have you agreed upon a verdict?' "'We have,' replied the foreman, handing a paper to a tipstaff, which he handed to the clerk, and the clerk, in turn, handed it to the presiding judge. The judges, one after another, read the paper, nodded their approval, and returned it to the clerk, who glanced over its contents, and then addressed the jury as follows. "'Gentlemen of the jury, hearken unto your verdict, as the court have it recorded, in the case wherein the Commonwealth is plaintiff and Jack Rennie is defendant. You say you find the defendant guilty, so say you all?' The members of the jury nodded their heads. The clerk resumed his seat, and the trial of Jack Rennie was concluded. It was what everyone had anticipated, and people began to leave the courtroom with much noise and confusion. Rennie was talking in a low tone with Pleadwell and Caroline, while the sheriff, who had advanced to take charge of the prisoner, stood waiting for them to conclude the conference. "'I don't want the lad armed,' said Rennie, talking earnestly to Caroline. "'Him nor his mither, nor his brother, nor hair on his head, nor a mouthful of his bread, no minya, higher reasons. The mon that so much as lays a straw in the lad's path shall suffer for it.' If I have to live a hundred years to take my vengeance on him. The sonorous voice of the court crier, adjourning the courts until the following morning, echoed through the now half-emptied room, and the sheriff said to Rennie, Well, Jack, I'm waiting for you. Then you need no wait longer, for I'm ready to go with you, and I'm hungry too. And Rennie held out his hands to receive the handcuffs which the sheriff had taken from his pocket. For some reason... They would not clasp over the man's huge wrists. Oh, exclaimed the officer. I have the wrong pair, Simpson. Turning to his deputy. Go down to my office and bring me the large handcuffs lying on my table. Simpson started, but the sheriff called him back. Never mind, he said. It won't pay. Jack won't try to get away from us, will you, Jack? Drawing a revolver from his pocket as he spoke and grasping it firmly in his right hand with his finger on the trigger. <laughs> take me for a fool, man, said Rennie, laughing as he glanced at the weapon. Then, turning to Caroline and Pleadwell, he continued, Good night, good night, and sweet dreams, Celia. Jack had never seemed in a gayer mood than as he marched off through the side door with the sheriff and his deputy. Perhaps it was the gaiety of despair. Caroline had not replied to the prisoner's cheery good night. He had looked on at the action of the sheriff with a curious expression in his eyes until the trio started away, 
and then he had hurried from the courtroom at a gate which made Pleadwell stare after him in astonishment. It was dark outside, very dark. A heavy fog had come up from the river and enshrouded the entire city. The street lamps shone but dimly through the thick mist, and a fine rain began to fall, as Tom and Sandy hurried along to their hotel, where they were to have supper, before going on a late train to their homes. Up from the direction of the courthouse came to their ears a confusion of noises, the shuffling of many feet, loud voices, hurried calls, two pistol shots in quick succession, a huge panting figure pushing by them and disappearing in the fog and darkness. By and by, excited men hurrying toward them. "'What's the matter?' asked Sandy, and someone, back in the mist, replied, "'Jack Rennie has escaped!' End of chapter 5